Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the second Sunday of Easter, April 16th, 2023. For Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. For the second Sunday of Easter, we always have the same gospel reading. It's one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And it's John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. This takes place in the same day as the resurrection, the evening of that day. Ah, why wait anymore? Let's get into the text. Starting at verse 19 of John chapter 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. A lot going on just in that verse right there. First off, it's the evening of the day, the first day of the week. And um, kind of a little subtle thing here, throughout the Old Testament, awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, the day begins at sunset the night before. So the reason that Jesus' body has to be taken down from the cross and buried in a hurry on Friday is because the Sabbath begins at sunset, and that work of burial has to be done. In fact, the, uh, the robbers have to be put to death prematurely and, and, and buried as well before the sun sets, and that Sabbath begins. So the eve of each day in the Old Testament and up through Jesus' death, is uh, it begins with, with sunset the night before and goes till sunset the following day. Here in John chapter 20, though, the evening of that day comes at the end of the day. Now, there might be a difference between eve and evening, but something has happened. Things have changed. This day has now begun in the morning, right around dawn, with the women arriving and finding that the tomb is empty. Now the day begins at sunrise, and this day is this day at evening is still part of the first day of the week. So just um, the measure of time has switched. Time hasn't changed, but the measure of time has switched now that Jesus is risen from the dead. And, and more certainly than that, John makes this clear that this is the first day of the week. Why does he make that clear? Because John spends his whole gospel lining up the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with creation. Remember how John 1 verse 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John goes on to say that through him, through Jesus, all things were made. So as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all together in Genesis chapter 1, creating all things in the perfect creation before the fall into sin. John's gospel about Jesus is saying that Jesus comes to restore creation by getting rid of the curse of sin. Jesus comes to make you a new creation that you might live in his kingdom forever. 
So, the week of creation began with the first day because there were no days before creation began. And now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now that the new creation is, is begun, when does he appear to his disciples? On the first day of the week. So Jesus appears to them in this locked room. And it's locked because they are still afraid. They have heard from the women who went to the tomb that Jesus is risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. The angels have said that Jesus is risen. And, and some of the women have actually seen the risen Christ. But at this point, the disciples are still locked in the room out of fear. They haven't had a great weekend. When Jesus was arrested, they fled from him. They abandoned him. Some openly betrayed him. Thank Peter, for instance. They spent Saturday, no doubt, miserable with no hope. And now that they've heard that Jesus is risen from the dead, they're still afraid and in a locked room. So if Jesus comes to give them kind of a performance evaluation as his disciples, it's going to be really low marks. But that's not why Jesus is there. In fact, his first words to them are not, you're fired. His first words are, peace be with you. And that is an announcement of absolution. Remember why Jesus has come. Back when he was born, in Luke chapter 2, the angels sing to the shepherds, Glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So Jesus, with his goodwill, has come to bring peace between God and man by taking away what creates hostility between God and man, namely man's sin. So here, when Jesus says to the disciples, peace be with you, first thing he says, in fact, he's saying, I forgive you. I'm the son of God and we are at peace because I have taken your sins away. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So what makes the disciples glad? Jesus is present. He has a body, so he's not a ghost. His body has wounds, which means he is the one who has made the sacrifice for their sins. And they know the sacrifice for sins has been made because he comes speaking peace. What joy. They, they have confidence of, of, of forgiveness because Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ is present speaking peace to them. Jesus said to them again, a second time in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Just a quick note here, not only are the disciples not fired, but Jesus still has great use for them. He is sending them in his name. So a little point here first. Um, the, the Greek word for send is from the Greek verb apostello, 
And that's the word from which we get the word apostle. So to be an apostle means to be sent. And really sent with a purpose. When Jesus sends the apostles out, he sends them to speak his word. They are his ambassadors. They are his heralds, his representatives. And so he is sending them to say what he has said to them. There is peace with God, and it's found in Jesus. And this is made evident by the next couple of verses, verses 22 and 23, which read, And when he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, Jesus breathes on them. This ties in with the creation account where God creates Adam by forming him from the dust and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Jesus has used similar language when speaking to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3 when he said to Nicodemus, The Spirit blows where and when he wills, and you hear his voice. So how do you hear the Spirit's voice? Through the word of God, through the word of Jesus. So Jesus says to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit as God enlivened Adam with his breath. Now he enlivens the disciples even more with his spirit. And then he gives them this word to say, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he's sending out his disciples, now his apostles, to speak his word. And what does Jesus say to those who are repentant of their sins, who desire forgiveness? Jesus says, I forgive you. What does Jesus say to those who aren't repentant, who don't want to be forgiven? He says, you're not forgiven, so you better repent. What Jesus institutes in these verses, 22 and 23, is called the office of the keys. Because keys unlock and lock things. And the the image of keys is taken from Matthew 16, verse 19, where Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are the keys of heaven? The forgiveness of sins. By forgiving sins, heaven is opened to the one who is forgiven. If someone does not repent, if they are not forgiven, then the doors of heaven are locked unless they repent. This today is is continued within the church. Christ has given the office of the keys to the church. And it's normally exercised publicly by the pastor. So the pastor acts in the apostolic ministry. He continues the work of the apostles, for instance, by speaking the absolution 
on Sunday morning where he says, for instance, upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, every now and then somebody visits Good Shepherd and they get upset. The pastor says those words. So I usually get a comment at the end of church or an email that says, Who are you to say, I forgive you all of your sins? Do you think you're God? And the answer is, no, I do not think that I am God. In fact, I said in the absolution, I was not. Because if you look at the words of the absolution, what the pastor says is, I stand before you to tell you what Jesus would say if Jesus were standing here. And if Jesus were standing before a whole congregation of people who just said, I'm sinful and need forgiveness, Jesus would say, I forgive you. That's the office of the keys. When people are repentant of their sin and desire forgiveness, we say, Jesus says to you, I forgive you. When people are not repentant of their sins, we say, Jesus desires that you be forgiven, so repent. Because as long as you want to hold on to your sins, you are not forgiven. So here in John chapter 20, Jesus gives us this remarkable gift, the office of the keys, the the speaking of forgiveness. And because the gift is so important, we get to hear about it every year on the Sunday after Easter, because that's how Jesus delivers the victory of Easter to us. The uh, gospel lesson doesn't end there. It continues with the story of Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So I find myself kind of an apologist for Thomas, because he gets this nickname that's lasted for two millennia now, Doubting Thomas. And I just want to point out that it's not like the rest of the disciples were great at believing after the resurrection, because when this gospel reading begins, they're still in a locked room for fear of the Jews because they have their doubts. So to pin Doubting Thomas on Thomas... To me, it's a little bit unfair because you could have doubting Peter, doubting James, doubting Andrew, and a whole bunch of doubters. I mean, this far in the text, we could easily say that Thomas should be nicknamed Absent Thomas because he's not there when Jesus arrives. Why is Thomas not there? Is he just on his own because he's opposed to the possibility of the resurrection? Has he left the other ten to go out and see if he can find proof of the resurrection? We don't know why he's gone. Now we do know when he comes back and the disciples say we have seen the Lord, he doubts them. So maybe he deserves a nickname after all. 
But really, he's not doing any worse than the rest of the ten have that day. And what Thomas wants is this. He wants proof of a bodily resurrection. In last week's podcast, I talked about how the empty tomb is a negative proof that Jesus is risen because his body's not there. Nevertheless, that's not quite a complete proof because someone could have just moved the body. To be absolutely sure that Jesus has risen from the dead, you need to see him flesh and blood standing before you, living and talking. And that's what Thomas wants to see. He wants to see Jesus, body and all, with the wounds to prove that he is the one who died and rose again. So, the text goes on. Eight days later, his, Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Note that it's eight days later, which means the next Sunday. In the Bible... Times, numbers for times are often inclusive. So when Jesus says that he rises after three days, Western mathematicians say, well, Friday night to Saturday night was one day, and Saturday night to Sunday morning was a half day. So Jesus rose after one and a half days, not three. And that's good Western mathematical thinking. It's not good Middle Eastern culture from the first century. Numbers like that are inclusive. So when Jesus says he rises on the third day or three days later, it means he's dead part of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday before he rises again. So those three days are inclusive. Likewise here, when when the disciples are gathered eight days later, that starts on a Sunday and includes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and the following Sunday. It's inclusive, so that week is eight days long. So when the disciples are gathered eight days later, they're gathered on the eighth day, and they're gathered on the new first day of the new week. Now, eight days is a symbol of new creation, Because God created the old creation in six days and rested on the seventh. Jesus rises on the first day of the week to say, I have come to bring about the new creation, to make you a new creation for a new heaven and earth. And that first day of the week is also the eighth day, a symbol of new creation as well. So, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So he's consistent in his reason for rising from the dead. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he returns and he speaks peace for a third time in this chapter. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus fulfills Thomas's request. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see the risen Jesus with the wounds in his hands and feet. And Jesus says, all right, here I am. 
hands and feet and even put your fist inside my side where the spear got me if you want to. And we actually have no record that Thomas actually puts his fingers in Jesus' nail marks or his hand in Jesus' side. Instead, the next verse has Thomas answering Jesus by saying, My Lord and my God. So perhaps the presence of Jesus and his word are enough for Thomas to believe. Jesus said to Thomas, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus is talking about you and me here because we haven't seen Jesus, but we believe that he is risen from the dead. Why do we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Because he gives us the faith to believe it. Where does he give us faith? He gives us faith in his word and his sacraments, in baptism and communion. So as the Spirit is at work in baptisms, that we are born again by water and the word. So the Spirit is alive as, as Jesus speaks his word, as he breathes his Holy Spirit upon us by that inspired word. And so also Jesus sustains our faith and strengthens it in his Holy Supper. And you want to keep the supper in mind in the story of Thomas for this reason. When Jesus appears to Thomas and says, put your fingers in my hands, here's my hands, here's my side, he is saying to Thomas, this is my body, right? So, so Thomas has faith because Jesus is present with him and speaking his word to him. In the divine service on Sunday morning, we hear God's word and we receive Jesus' body and blood. The same Jesus, the same flesh and blood, blood that stood before Thomas. So as Jesus spoke to Thomas and Jesus said, in other words, to Thomas, this is my body. So Jesus speaks to us in the divine service by his word. And in his supper, Jesus says to us, this is my body and adds for our benefit. This is my blood. What is the difference between you and me and Thomas? Thomas got to see. We did not, but we have the same word of Jesus. We have the same word. We have the same body and blood of Jesus that Thomas witnessed. The only difference is that we believe without seeing. So while Jesus does not explicitly refer to the sacrament of the altar in this passage, there is a very, very strong possibility that he's referring to it or alluding to it with these words to Thomas. So keep the Holy Communion in mind. In fact, a couple of things about this text that we should keep in mind with the sacrament of the altar. First off, Jesus enters this locked room, body and all, 
to forgive his disciples. So perhaps a silly question is this. How does Jesus get his body into the room? The doors are locked. There's no record that he breaks through the wall and sends dust and rocks scattering everywhere. Somehow Jesus manages to get his body into that room, let's say, through a wall without breaking the wall. Which means for a moment in time, as Jesus passes through that wall, his body is present, but it's not taking up space. If his body took up space and he displaced the wall, he would win, the wall would lose. But Jesus manages to move his body through the wall so his body is there but doesn't take up space. This might sound a little bit silly to talk about, but, but it has implications for the Lord's Supper because some have objected to the doctrine of the real presence by saying, if that bread is now Christ's body, if the bread and Christ's body are both present, shouldn't that wafer double in size? And the answer is, it doesn't have to, because as Jesus was present, body and all, in that wall coming into that room, where his body was present but didn't take up space, his body can be present in, with, and under that bread without taking up space. Now, to be honest, I haven't heard this objection to the Lord's Supper in a long time. Maybe nobody makes it anymore. But if somebody does, now you know. One other consideration for Holy Communion is, is um, Jesus' words, Peace be with you. He enters this locked room, and again, his first words to his disciples are words of absolution. I am here. I am risen from the dead. See my, my body before you. Peace be with you. This has led to what's called the Pax Domini as part of the communion liturgy. The pastor consecrates the elements. He speaks words of institution just before you receive Holy Communion. And then here at Good Shepherd, the pastor turns around and he holds up a host, a piece of the bread, and he holds up the chalice, the cup of wine. And because the words have been spoken, that bread is now Christ's body and that wine is now Christ's blood, And he says to you, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Why? Because when Jesus stood body and blood before his disciples, risen from the dead, his first words to his disciples were, peace be with you, I forgive you your sins. At the Lord's Supper, the same Jesus, body, blood, and all is with you. Why? To give you peace. You don't see him, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that is why, as part of the liturgy, the pastor turns around, shows to you, offers towards you the body and blood of Christ, and says, The peace of the Lord be with you always, because the Lord is now present in, with, and under this bread and wine. 
to give you peace. Our gospel reading ends with this this little uh, delightful couple of verses, which read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is delightful because John will mention this one more time in John chapter 21. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We just don't have record of them. So so what stories remain untold? Do we get to find out in heaven the more wonders that Jesus did during his ministry before his crucifixion and after his resurrection? Or when we get to heaven, will it just not matter anymore? But, but what you hear about in the Gospels is it's just a taste of what Jesus accomplished during his ministry, of the wonders that he worked as the Son of God, creating us anew. The other one, a bit more practical, is this. These signs that are recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. This gives us, in a nutshell, the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is given to us in the Scripture to give us faith, so that we might believe in Jesus, and believing in Jesus, we might have life in his name. In the beginning, God created by speaking. Now, through his holy word, Jesus recreates you that you might have life in his name forevermore. What great Easter news. And that concludes our look at this Sunday school lesson for the second Sunday of Easter, John 20, 19 to 31. God grant you every good gift as you meditate upon this text further. God grant you every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again together, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.